want to discuss with you um, caring well. Specifically when it comes to the area of uh, caring well for a member of a church who is erring. Okay? How, do we, how do we care well? How do we love somebody well who persists in um, sin that is um, unchanged? There is no signs of godly sorrow. How do we care well? Why do we uh, decide to pursue action in these situations? Um, what is the goal throughout this whole process? And then what are some dangerous extremes that we as a church may be tempted to lean towards, whether it be leniency or sternness on the other hand? So um, we're going to be going through quite a few passages, as you can see from your notes. Um, so we'll try to move along relatively quickly. Um, that is the goal. <coughs> Anyways. Caring well will be in 1 Corinthians 5, will be in 2 Corinthians 2, and 2 Corinthians 7. Not necessarily in that order, but those are the passages we'll be in in chronological order. Um, so the big idea is that we care well to maintain health in the church. We care well to maintain the health in the church. And what I want us to look at first is... Um, why we practice church restoration. I've, I've purposely um, changed the wording from what you probably have most commonly heard um, to church restoration instead of church discipline. Not that what we're doing is not church discipline, but I think sometimes we get so heavy on the discipline aspect that we forget the actual purpose. The purpose is that we would see somebody restored to us. That is the goal. That is the motivation. That is the reason why we do this. And so throughout your, your notes, I will refer to it as church restoration. Try and highlight for us the goal, our purpose, and our end aim in this whole process. So why we practice church restoration, there will be times where I'll just abbreviate it with CR so that I can fit everything on your notes um, without changing the font size any smaller. Anyways, um, if you would, Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I think 1 Corinthians 5 um, gives us, it's going to give us advice as to when you pursue church restoration and when you, when you choose to discipline somebody from the church, but it also highlights a number of different things that point to what should be our motivation, our heart's desire as we go through this process. Why do we do this? I'd like us to just read through the entire passage, and then I'll slowly go through and kind of highlight, I think, six or so different ideas about the importance of church restoration for the um, purity and health of the church. <clears throat> Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan 
for the, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to get out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? For those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. All right. So what is, what is Paul trying to communicate to the Corinthian church? What is Paul trying to communicate to us about the importance of church restoration? First of all, church restoration preserves the reputation of the church. So Paul begins and he's rebuking the church because what is actually occurring in the church is something that is such a vile sin um, that a man is having a sexual relationship with his um, father's wife. I mean, it's just repulsive even to those who are outside of the church, much, much less than should it not be repulsive to those who are in the church. And so it preserves the reputation of the church. Now, if the church doesn't have a reputation, then it really has no standing, no basis upon which to reach out into the community. And so Paul challenges them that by pursuing church restoration with this individual, that they will actually preserve the reputation of their church. In verse 2, he says... <coughs> It exposes sin so that it can be addressed. Instead of a desire to expose the sin, what are these people doing? They're actually becoming puffed up. And they haven't mourned. Okay. Um, have not mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Okay. He's assuming that... Um, they're going to expose the sin, and as they expose the sin, it will allow for action to be taken. And, and instead of exposing the sin and saying this is wrong, and we as believers don't do that at the church of Corinth, instead they're becoming prideful and they're arrogant towards the sin and they're arrogant towards those who are against what's going on and want to publicly expose it so that it can be dealt with. And he says that's wrong. Okay. So we're supposed to expose sin, we're supposed to reveal sin so that we can more adequately, more faithfully deal with the sin. Church restoration has the purpose of warning those in error. In verse 5, he talks about this. He says that this is a means by which we have the opportunity to warn someone 
that there is a problem going on. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a way which we are able to warn somebody and tell them, hey, you're headed for a cliff. This is not a good path. This is a path that will lead to destruction. Turn around. Stop. Okay? And ultimately, he says that that is, has a purpose of saving one in, pre, in persistent error. Okay? So it ultimately provides us an opportunity to save, um, not that we save them from um, their sin, but rather we help them to come into a right relationship once again with God, because that is the goal. The goal is that they would be restored not only to us, but also to God. Okay. <clears throat> and then in verses 6 through 8, um, church restoration aims to maintain the purity of the church. This is where he talks about the leaven and the unleavened. Okay, And the idea is that a little bit of yeast has a great effect on a lump of dough, right? Makes it expand, okay? And he's saying the same thing is true about sin. If you allow sin to be present in the church and you don't address it, then there is the possibility that it would grow and begin to affect other people in the church and it will lead to greater and greater sin within the confines of a local church. And so he he tells the Corinthians to address the sin, to not sit there idly, but to take action about this sin. And then church restoration aims to judge believers within the church. For some of you, this might be like, what? Isn't the Bible says, judge not that ye be not judged? Well, what is Paul saying here? He's, he's saying we're supposed to judge them. So how do you, how do you understand both ideas together okay what is what is what does jesus mean when he says judge not that you be not judged and why does paul here tell the corinthian church um for what have i to do with judging those who are outside the world do you not judge those who are inside okay he's saying that we have a responsibility to judge those who are inside Okay, so the purpose of um, Jesus' statement is don't, don't go around pointing out other people's sin when you're not examining your own life. Okay? So when we come to church discipline, we're assuming that you and I are attempting and seeking, desiring that as we go through life that we are examining our own life, we're seeing areas in our life or we are in need of change, or we are in need of growth, and that we are seeking to address those areas. That means that if you are here, and you're going to participate in our business meeting in a little bit, and there are areas in your life where there is unconfessed sin, sin that you are not examining your life well about, that you are not pursuing righteousness in, that you're in a very bad place. Because Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Okay? The danger is that we would approach the situation, that we would say, this is wrong, and it is wrong, and it needs to be addressed. But that we would do so from a place of pride. And we would be much like the, first, the people in 1 Corinthians who are puffed up. And our being puffed up could result in a different response. We could say, 
well, that's wrong, but I'm going to leave the little sin in my closet and not touch it. Okay. So church restoration is an important, vital aspect of a healthy church. Okay. What I want us to do now is, hopefully we're on the same basis and we all agree that church restoration is important. What is the goal of church restoration? What am I seeking to accomplish? What are you seeking to accomplish? What do we want to see in the person who we place on a church restoration process? Whether that be the first step where, you know, you hear me yell at my wife and you come up to me and you're like, Pastor David, that was very wrong to yell at your wife in the parking lot. That's church restoration, right? You haven't told the deacons yet, but you've come and you've confronted me because there's an area in my life where I have sinned, and I need to be addressed about that area, okay? Anyway, in the process, though, the desire is that you will see godly sorrow, that you will see godly sorrow. And Paul talks about this type of sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 16. So I want us to go there now, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Seven, and we'll look at verses 5 through 16. <coughs> All right. So I want to read through the passage, and then we'll slowly work through what is Paul telling the Corinthians here? What is, what's actually going on in this passage? We're going to do it in a very quick fashion because we don't have much time. But we're going we're gonna to do it. All right. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the consolation with which we were comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire your mourning your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more verse 8 for even I made you sorry for even if I made you sorry with my letter I do not regret it Though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But, in contrast, there's a different kind of sorrow, right? But sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What does this produce? What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all these, in all these things, you proved yourself to be clear 
in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of whom who suffered wrong, but for our sake, for you in the sight of God might appear to you. That our care for you, sorry, that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Verse 13. Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true, and his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. All right, so what's what's going on in this passage? What's going on? All right. Paul's sorrow that he describes in verse 5 is a flashback. Verse 5 is not what's currently happening in Paul's life. Paul is saying, this used to be true of me, but it's not anymore. Okay, look. For indeed, when, that's past tense, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Anybody feel like that? Yeah. All right. For we were troubled in every side. Okay? And then he's going to describe what the trials looked like. Outside were conflicts. There was fighting going on outside. And inside were fears. He doesn't describe what the fighting outside looked like. Probably some of it had to deal with the church problem that was in Corinth that he's addressing. But outside there's conflicts. Inside there's fear. And if you've ever been really gripped by fear, you know how taxing and how wearing that can be. This is how Paul felt when he got to Macedonia, and he's going to write a letter to the Corinthians to address a problem that's in the church that's persisting, and he doesn't know how they're going to respond to his letter. We don't have this letter. I think there's actually three letters written to the Corinthians. There's the first one, which we just looked at. There's this one, which is actually the third one, and there's the middle one that he's talking about in chapter um, 7 here. If you disagree with me, we can still be friends. That's my understanding of the passage. Though. But anyway, verses 6 through 7, Paul's comfort was in the Corinthians' restoration. Why is he not feeling how he did? Because this is a flashback. Why does his feelings change in verses 6 through 7? Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us. Why? Because Titus came back with a good report of the church. Titus came back and said, you know, the problem that was going on at Corinth has changed for the better. These people are pursuing righteousness, Paul. They're pursuing a restored relationship with God and with you. And those fears within, those conflicts without, the situation that Paul was going through in verse 5, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, Look at verses 6 through 7. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. So Titus was also comforted by what the Corinthians did. What did it result in? When he told us of your earnest desire, 
a desire to change, a desire to be with Paul, a desire to be restored to fellowship with God. You're mourning. When they understood their sin, they mourned. Your zeal for me. So that what happened? This guy that is almost paralyzed in verse 5 by fear within says, so that I rejoiced even more. Okay? So now he's going to go back and he's going to give us more details on the situation and what godly sorrow looks like. In verse 9, the letter he sent them with Titus, he wrote the letter, they didn't have a post office like we do now where you know you, you write the letter and you just send it. Okay? He wrote the letter, he gave it to Titus, Titus took the letter, read it to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were like, wow, we need to change. Verse 8, or sorry, yeah, verse 8. For even if I made you sorry, so he knew that he was writing a stern letter. He knew what he was doing was something that was stern. It was hard. It was not easy for them to read. It says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. But I did regret it at the time. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. He then goes on in verse 9. He says, The letter led to genuine godly repentance. Now rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. It led to a change of mind, a realization that what God wanted was something completely different than what they were pursuing, and so they changed their mind. They pursued something different. Okay? led to repentance for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing they suffered no loss did it lead to some sorrow for a while yes did it lead to sorrow even in paul's life yes but it led to no loss in anything okay and that should be your heartbeat, that should be my heartbeat, not just tonight, but anytime we go through a church restoration situation. The goal is that it will lead to godly sorrow that leads to extreme action on the individual who sees that there is a need for repentance, a need for change. Uh, verse 10, Paul contrasts godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So he's going to begin to introduce this, and then he's going to go back and he's going to highlight some of the ideas of uh, godly sorrow in even greater detail in a little bit. But Paul contrasts the two. Uh, For godly sorrow produces, repent- produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Okay, Godly sorrow leads to salvation, which is not regretted. That's true. Hopefully you don't regret your salvation, okay? Hopefully you don't regret times where you've had to repent. Okay? But what's the contrast? The contrast is that worldly sorrow, the sorrow of the world produces death. And this passage should challenge us about how we actually respond to areas in our life where we find sin. When you and I take the responsibility of examining our life with God's word and we see areas in our life where we are 
failing to live up to God's holy standard for our life, how do you and I respond? Does it lead to true lasting change or does it lead to a feeling of regret? Oh, I'm sorry I did that. Now I'm going to have to face the consequences. I, 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 I did that credit card again and now my wife's going to know because she's going to see the, the bill and then I'm going to have to explain and she's going to be mad because I went over budget. I wasn't supposed to eat out today. I was supposed to pack myself a sandwich. Oh, no. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, okay? But, the, you know, um, why are you sorry? Are you sorry because there's a, a need for real change and you're not pursuing change, or is it because you got caught again? Okay, It should lead to true, lasting change. So that he's contrasting what the two look like. And now he's going to describe in even greater detail what does godly sorrow look like? What are the things that me and you can look at in our lives? What are the things that me and you can look at in other people's lives and say, that demonstrates real godly sorrow because there's actions that are taking place that are, that are fruit of this desire to change. I have a change of mind and it's resulting in a change of actions. And there's a number of them, okay? Godly sorrow produces diligence for real change. Verse 11, okay? For observe this very thing, that, your sor that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you. We can't go to work and say we are diligent if we didn't work hard, Right? boss would say, no, you didn't work hard if you weren't diligent. Like, you get to work and you pull out your phone and you watch YouTube for five of the eight hours. It's probably not diligent unless you have, you know, like some weird circumstances with your job. Some people might be able to get away with that because their job just is, you know, a different kind of job than most of us have. But most of us, if you were to go watch YouTube or Netflix or Hulu or whatever you watch, for five out of the eight hours of your shift, and you would go to report to your boss, you know, I was really diligent. They'd be like, no, you didn't really put in any effort. You have to put in effort. If we are truly pursuing genuine repentance, it will require that we put in effort, that we are working hard, that we are being diligent. Okay? Verse 11 continues on. It produces a desire. Okay? Um, what diligence are produced in you, what clearing of yourself. Okay. What does he mean by clearing of yourself? I think he's saying it means that when we have true godly sorrow, it produces a desire to separate from sin. I want to clear myself from association with dot. Whether dot is using um, your, your credit card too much to eat out or whether dot is... Um, pursuing wrongful entertainment or whether dot is being disrespectful to leadership in your life. Okay? It means that when we have godly sorrow, we drastically try to say, that is something that does not characterize who I am. I have died to sin. I have been buried with Christ and I have been raised in newness of life. I'm going to live 
a different kind of life. A desire to clear oneself, to separate from the sin. He continues, godly sorrow results in indignation at sin. Verse 11, what indignation? That's a word that we don't use very much, is it? What is indignation? It means anger. God wants us to be angry? Yes, angry at the sin. When you're truly having godly sorrow, you'll be angry not just because you got caught, not just because of the consequences, but because the sin is ultimately not a violation of your relationship with your spouse or a violation of your relationship with your boss or a violation of your relationship with your parents, but ultimately the sin is a violation in your relationship with God. And you should be angry that a holy God was offended against by such a sin. And you should be angry at the sin. And that's what it led to in the Corinthians' life. When, when the letter came to them, these are the things that we see was evident. Paul knew it was evident because of Titus's report. They had a change of heart. Godly sorrow results in a fear of God. What fear? A proper reverence and understanding of who God is and who I am in relationship to him. Which led to a desire to change. I think part of the fear is also the understanding that worldly sorrow results in what? Death. I really think that believers who persist in worldly sorrow hang death over their head. I really believe that. I think scripture teaches it over and over again. When we persist in worldly sorrow, when, when we see ourselves in sin and we choose to ignore the sin and to just continue on and we're, oh, sorry I got caught, I'll try to hide it better next time. It's like you have a 2,000-ton block over your head and you're like sitting there with a razor blade cutting away the rope that's holding it up. Stupid. You're hanging death over your head if you persist in simply worldly sorrow. But it continues on. Uh, the godly sorrow leads to desire and zeal for restoration with fellow believers and God. Okay? Um... What fear, what vehement desire. What is this desire? It's a vehement desire, which, once again, language that we don't use very much, right? But I think what he's saying is it results in you having an earnest desire and zeal to be restored to God and to be restored to your fellow brother that you've sinned against. It should result in a desire, a strong desire to be restored the proper relationships that you were once in. <clears throat> Continue. Um, godly sorrow results in punishing offenders. He talks about vindication at the end of this passage. Uh, what zeal, what vindication. That is a willingness. If somebody is persisting in the sin, I think that if the Corinthian church saw some of their people not being willing to get in a right relationship with Paul and not responding in this way to 
the instruction from Paul through Titus, they would have been willing to remove them from membership because they weren't seeing godly sorrow. It results in a willingness to do sometimes what is very hard. All right. We don't really have time to cover verses 12 through 15 in great detail. I'm happy to sit down and talk with you about that in a lot more detail, but we do have to keep moving. All right. So verse 16, true repentance leads to rejoicing. That's what happens. Paul sees the repentance and it leads to him rejoicing. He's happy that he's been restored. He's happy that they have been restored to God. He says, therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. He knows that if they followed his instruction in this area, then his instruction in 2 Corinthians 2 will also be heeded. That his instruction in 2 Corinthians 1 will also be heeded. That his instruction about giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 will be heeded. Why? Because they've done something extremely hard. They pursued genuine godly sorrow. And they've repented. They've changed. And it leads to rejoicing in his life. He's been restored to them. They've been restored to a relationship with God. All right. What I want to do last of all is to look at possible extremes that we as believers might be tempted to err on. And what I want to do is to use, once again, the Corinthian church to show us two possible extremes that we as a church could lean to as we look at church restoration. So very quickly, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. And in that passage, you see that the Corinthian church has a lenient view on the matter. Okay? Specifically, we're just going to look at two verses. I put 1 through 8. You can read them. We've already read them. But I just want to focus on verses 1 and 2, okay? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Okay? First of all, sin was running rampant. I mean, people were committing sins that the outsiders, the leadership of the city, the leadership at workplaces, when they heard this, they're like, what? Like, we Gentiles don't even do stuff this crazy. And you guys are in the church that says you serve God and you pursue righteousness and holiness, and you're doing this? It was absurd. And what was their response? They were prideful, and they failed to address it. They are far too lenient. They're willing to allow the sin to go on and to just tuck it under a rug and act like it didn't exist. That is one extreme that we must avoid. There is the danger that we as a church should would not address sin. But on the other hand, you see the church in Corinth later was too stern. If you would, go with me really quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter um, 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. Um, really, the, the passage is highlighted in chapter 5 through 
11. Those are the primary verses, but we haven't looked at 2 Corinthians yet, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit more context. Verse 3, and I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Okay, this is where he's really going to start addressing this idea that you're doing church restoration wrong. Why? Because they're not restoring. Okay? But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, and not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay. So what's he saying? The Corinthians are now practicing church discipline. And you might think, yay, they're finally doing what they should have been doing. But the problem is, the guy has been put on church discipline and he has changed. He has demonstrated godly sorrow from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And the church is still going, nope, what you did is just unforgivable. We're not going to let you back into this church. Absolutely not. No way. Uh-uh. And what does Paul say about this? In verse 7, the problem is that they have lost sight of the goal. They've forgotten that it's about church restoration. They got the discipline part right, but the discipline has seen its required and intended purpose. The person has seen, has changed, and is pursuing righteousness. And the danger is now that this individual might be consumed by sorrow. And what does he end this whole section by saying? He says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay. When we see true godly sorrow, we have to, at that point, be willing to embrace and to love the individual once more. You love the person even while they're under church discipline, okay? Don't misunderstand me. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about don't even eat with such a one. I don't think that that means that you can't eat with somebody who's on church discipline. I think what that means is when you eat with them, you don't say, brother so-and-so, what are some prayer requests that we can pray for you? You say, so-and-so, what are some prayer requests that we can pray for you? Okay? Because we can't separate from the world. We have the responsibility to be in the world to demonstrate the glorious nature of Christ and that means even for those who were once members of our churches we have the responsibility to continue a relationship with them to 
continue to show them who Christ is and to call them to change. Okay? But the danger is that we could swing from one pendulum to the other. And instead of saying, nope, we're not going to deal with any church discipline, we're just going to act like it doesn't exist and put it under the rug, the danger, on the other hand, is that when somebody actually comes in genuine repentance, that we would say, nope, nope, we're not, we're, we don't. That person's sin was far too great for us to be willing to forgive. Meanwhile, we forget that Christ died on the cross to forgive us. Okay? And Satan uses this as one of his devices to hurt the church. So we don't want to swing from one pendulum to the other. We want to be faithful to God's word. We want to follow proper practices in church restoration. We want to seek the right goal. We want to see the right response. Okay? That should be your prayer. That is my prayer. That is the deacon's prayer. Okay? We must be willing to restore when one is demonstrating godly sorrow. Okay? We have to. There's the danger that we will be too lenient, and there's also the danger that we'll be too stern. Okay. What's Paul telling us through the books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? Church restoration maintains the purity of the body of Christ. Church restoration maintains the purity of the body of Christ. Church restoration pursues godly sorrow as a result. Always. If that's not your pursuit tonight, you need to take time and repent. Okay? It always pursues godly sorrow as a result. Church restoration shuns excessive leniency. That is, we distance ourselves from being too lenient. But it also shuns excessive sternness. There's a danger that we would swing between two pendulums. Our desire is not to be swinging from one pendulum to the other in constant sin, because that's what that is, but to try to seek to be faithful to God's word and to pursue having a church that is righteous and holy and spotless and able to accomplish God's purpose and to be a bride that is accomplishing God's, Christ's purpose on the earth. That is our desire. That is our prayer. Okay. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the ability to come and to look at your word and to see how it calls us to think and how it calls us to act. We pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified through our faithfulness to your word. And in your name we pray. Amen.